The Hustle. Welcome to The Hustle with me, Roger Sanchez. It's our regular series where we sit down with some of the most interesting and influential people in music, media, sport, and culture to talk about the business side of life. Now, my guest for this episode is an absolute giant in the electronic music world. And he's also a household name. I'm pretty sure most of you who are listening will know who he is. Now, he's behind several dance tracks like Praise You, Rockefeller Skank, Weapon of Choice, one of my favorites right here, right now, and so many more. Now, he's produced some of the most famous remixes of all time, has shelves full of awards. I'm pretty sure he's got some of them behind him right now. You know, Grammys, Brits, Ivor Novellos, just to name a few. And he sold quite a lot of records. So I am very honored to have with me on The Hustle today, the fat boy Slim himself, the one and only Norman Cook. Thanks for joining us, Norman. Thank you very much, Roger. Uh, you're a very gracious introduction. I can only disappoint after that big build up. <laughs> no, you can never disappoint, as a matter of fact. Well, it's, one of the, it's one of the best things about you is that you're always full of surprises, none of which disappoint. Really? So, None well, of them disappoint. You know what? And to be honest, I've, because I've been quite reflective recently, and I've, the, not all of them have been good, the surprises, but you never get to hear the bad ones. I think that's Did, a, there's an old adage in my family, which is you can't make an omelette without breaking a few eggs. Let me tell you, even if you, even, even if you get some of the shells in that egg, in that egg omelette, it's still kind of tasty. Yeah, yeah. Some of them had it. Yeah, some of them, some of them were a little crunchy. <laughs> no, but I mean, no, some of them just, you know, like just um, disappear without trace something. So, um, and every, because it's weird every now and then you remind of something you do and you're like, oh God, yeah, I spent all that time doing it and it just, you know, it just didn't work. But it's I, I, like you said, I, I, it's better to surprise and disappoint than just to, you know, smooth along, along in the middle. You know, I, I think one of the best things is always being very much yourself and being 100% honest. And you know what? Whether you succeed or fail at whatever it is you're trying to do or whatever it is you're doing, it comes from an honest place. And it's one of the things I've always appreciated about you because every single time I've seen you and we've actually caught up. Um, as a matter of fact, I think um, the first time we met um, in person was on a private jet for me to leave gig back in the 90s. Oh, you, do you remember that? That was the first time I actually met you. Do you remember that one? Was that, that, was that the, Christ. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I don't remember when it was. So I don't remember <laughs> going. It was in yeah. the 90s and it was New Year's Eve. And you know, obviously you, you had like huge records at the time. I, I think you were still, um, I think Zoe Ball was with, with you on the jet with us that day. And I remember I used to have it recorded. Like I had a video of it and some pictures of somebody stole my laptop, broke into a house years ago, they beat that. So I lost it all. So I'm kind of pissed off about that. That was it. No, Cause I think Oki was on that flight. Oki was on that flight yeah. too. That's right. And what- I'll be honest, I'll, I'll be honest. Do you remember I was partying quite a lot in those days? So. I'm, I'm, yeah. only, I'm more reminded by the photos. Yeah, Zoe was there. <laughs> uh, I'm, but yeah, it was quite an interesting New Year's Eve, as I remember. It, uh, it, was, it was a hell of a lot of fun. I got to tell you something. I mean, that was probably one of the first times I'd actually flown on a private jet. It wasn't very big, I remember going. The bit, if anything, I was more disappointed with the size of the jet and kind of having to stuff I'm in. Even, but, I'm not even sure if it was a jet, Roger. 
I think it might have been a propeller. <laughs> I think it was a propeller. Uh, oh, dear. How partial we were all complaining of bloody propellers and jets. No, no, no. Listen, well, that, no, like I said, in those days, we didn't complain about getting flown to gigs. That was, nah. it was quite a novelty in those days. It was very exciting. Especially yeah, well, driving up and down the M1. Brixton. Yes. We dealt with already on Brixton Academy really early. Yes, yes. And then we... We flew to London, I think. Oh, I think we, we flew to London. Because I, I remember... I, around. I remember it was a big arena. Before the O2 was built, it was a big arena. And it was... I just remember us kind of going down a hallway. I had a huge kind of like leather camo... Um, bloody sheepskin at that time. It was freaking cold in the UK. It was New Year's Eve. Um, but I just remember, you know, sitting on the plane and just kind of talking to you and just thinking, he's really, really cool. He's just a really normal person. And it's one of the things that's always come across about you. You're a real person. You know, every time I see you playing without your shoes on, so I know you like to get comfortable, you know, so I love that about you. Well, I think I think we we always got on because we I think we come from we we sing from the same hymn sheet. I yeah. mean, because you I instantly because I, I was you see I was really scared of meeting you because I I held you in awe and I was like oh my god and I was amazed you were even talking to me, let alone that you were like friendly. And, ah, mate, but the it, thing it, is, I think we we do this because we we love the music predominantly. Yes. And we also love the effect it has on people. And, and on ourselves when we listen to it together. But, um, yeah, I mean, you, you, we definitely hit it off because we had the same kind of uh, just love of what we do. Um, you know, one, it, it's one of the interesting things. Both you and I started music really early on in life. I, I think you started, like, when you were about 18. And you had well, sorry, DJ, DJ Quintox was your, was your yeah. actual <laughs> you prop. prop Proper, proper DJ start of the career. Listen, I, I, had, yeah. I, had a, I had a cheesy name. I think it was called DJ Latino when I first started off in my career. <laughs> so so don't, don't beat yourself up about that. Um, and, and I know, you know, you start, I'm not going to go down the whole like rabbit hole of, 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 of all your Marvel Comics story, but I kind of do like to do, I like to call it the Marvel Comics origin story. So I know you started playing in Brighton in one of the places I've in the UK. Um, and you connected with a bass, with your fellow bass player. He was a bassist for the band The House of Martins, Paul Heaton, I think was yeah. his name, right? Yeah. Um, and I remember The House of Martins stuff and like kind of your early Beats International, I used to love that Be Good To Me track. Um, and I just remember that at that point, I was like, yo, who is this? And I'm in America getting all of what I call the imports from the UK. And I'm like, who is this Norman Cook guy? Because he actually, I'm a big sample head. Like I used to go, Kenny Dope and I used to go to um, go record shopping at these different record fairs um, and just kind of hunt through vinyl. And I know that you're just, you're just like that. So yeah. it's, it's, it's an interesting one to kind of know that you come from that real music loving place. Yeah. You know I mean? Well, the weird thing was I, was, I was remembering this story and explained to my son the other day of how I became a DJ because I always wanted to be a musician. And, um, but I, used I was to a, be a dancer. I used to be a dancer. Well, that's that, where I started off. That, that, you know, I see, I wanted to be a musician uh, ever since I was a kid. I just wanted to be, you know, and then 
uh, when punk rock came out, I was about 14 when punk rock came out and that really freed everything up. It's like, look, you don't have to know your instrument that well. You just pick up a guitar as, you know, learn it, roughly learn how to play it. So I kind of, I was sort of excited about that, but then, um, when I came down to Brighton to go to college and I'd failed my A-levels mm-hmm. because I was in a band with Paul. And so when I went to college, I, was, I said to myself, look, if you're going to stick three years at college, you can't be in a band because it, <laughs> it's not going to work. That so I, I took up my second love, which was DJing. So I DJed in clubs all the way through college. And, um, but at that point, I just, I, I, just, I just loved black music. And in those days, it was more like it was black music made by black people not so yeah. much by white people, unless you were like simply red, you know. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, so I was, I so me, I was in a band where I was, I was where me and Paul both loved black music, but we felt that our legacy as suburban white gawky kids was to play kind of indie pop. But and and also at the same time, in those days, DJing was more of a hobby rather than a profession. It just you know, didn't pay well enough to, to to make a living out of it. I remember those college lugging around milk crates that you used to lug around the, yeah. the milk like the, the yeah, bloody yeah. milk crates were still from the local grocers crates for the records yeah 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 and and yeah it didn't pay the pay it wasn't about the pay at that point in time it was really about kind of the buzz yeah you know, i remember going in, i remember when i was playing in college i i came from the beginning of breaks and funk and hip-hop then disc and disco which later on much later on down the road, more than the house music. But back then it was really about playing and getting the vibe off of the crowd. So here's a question then. If it wasn't paying very, very well at the time, did you know that at that point in time when you were DJing that you wanted it to become like a proper job? Or, you know, did it feel like this is just, we're going to have a laugh for right now? Well, no, because it it never really was a proper job. I mean, even like the top DJs, in those days still had a, like another job that paid the rent. So I don't know, I did, I, but it was just a hobby. I mean, I only started, I started DJing because I had all the records. I was a fanatical record collector. So people used to invite me to parties just because I was the one who had the records. And that's, that's the best thing about having all the good records. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I, I always enjoyed playing music to other people, but I felt in life what I wanted to do was make my own music. Yes. And so for years I, I made music in bands and I had you know, Freak Power and Beats International. And, uh, but all the while DJing was my kind of second love, but, but, but it went from a hobby. So somewhere along the line, and I, can, I know exactly when it was, I was in a band called Freak Power and we were a proper traditional band, like a funk band. And we were traveling around in a, in a beaten up old van doing gigs and never making any money. So and rock and roll, I love it. <laughs> and at the same time, while I, while I was touring around Europe, busting my balls, I was releasing records as the Mighty Dubcats and uh, an early Fatboy Slim. And, and then all of a sudden, more people wanted to come and see me DJ than wanted to hear me come and play guitar. And that was a big moment in my life. And it, I was like... That was around I the really 90s, like, right? I, I really, sorry? That was around the 90s, wasn't it? That would have been, yeah, mid-90s. Mid Mid-90s. So I'd, been, I'd still kept up DJing, and I'd, I was making these sort of funny little kind of sample dance records. Uh, but I was playing, you know, I felt my, my, you know, my role was made as a musician and a producer. But it's great. I realized that people wanted the other stuff. They wanted the, the, the DJing stuff. 
and um, it was. I think uh, that's one of the reasons I think I've I've been so lucky in my career is. By that point, I'd been a DJ for 10, 15 years, so I knew I had the chops to be, and when every, all of a sudden everyone wanted DJs, I, I had those chops. But also, because I'd been making pop records in pop bands, I kind of had a pop sensibility, and I yes. knew a little bit more about how to you know, make it work as pop music. Well, and around the time, by the time I was Fatboy Slim, that, kind of, that had kind of all come together. But... I realized then that I, I'm a better DJ than I'm a bass player or a guitar <laughs> or a songwriter. And, and I was just more happy doing that. And, and since then, until three months ago, in my head, it was like, you know what? I'm quite happy just being a DJ. I, kind of, I do less and less producing, less and less actually putting records out. And I really love, I love, I love the idea of it kind of like you're a wandering troubadour. Yes. Minstrels. Like back in the, in the Middle Ages, there would be these people who... who they told the stories by in song and they would travel from city to city, picking up stories and taking one story from one city to another. And it feels like that when you're a DJ, it feels like you're just traveling around having this conversation with people. You ever watch, you ever watch the series on Netflix called the Witcher? No. Okay. You got to see it because there's a traveling troubadour minstrel that goes along with the main character. It's kind of like the, the right. goofy guy, but he's always making up songs. And that kind of does remind me of exactly what you're talking about right now. Well, that was, that was how, you know, pre the internet, that's how information got from city to city where, you know, they would hear a song about, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so and what the exploits that they got up to. And I think we're, we're DJs who are like a modern day version of that. We sort of travel around and we, um, and we, uh, but it's, yeah, we, we transmit all this information from town to town. Sadly, we also transmit <laughs> viruses, which is why we're all staying at home. Bloody right? hell. Listen, you know what's interesting? Um, thinking about the kind of origins of where we started, the technology to make records back in the 90s, when the explosion of DJing really hit it off, and when you really kind of got into it as Fatboy Slim, with samplers, and I think the DJing side of things really leads to the production side of things because not only do you have the pop sensibility, but you have the dance floor headspace. The technology to make records back then was very, very different. I used to have like SB1200, S950, so on and so forth. What did you used to use back then, and how does that compare to if you have if you want to make a track now? Like, how do you find the difference in the technology from then to now? How does that season the flavor of what you're I doing? Think, I think that is one of the reasons I don't make records anymore is I, I used to love, uh, my main weapon choice was a, two S950s. Mm -hmm. so I had enough, had enough uh, memory in them. Two S950s, a 909, a 303, uh, and a, oh, a MIDI Moog. It was like yeah. a mini Moog, but it had a memory on it. And that was pretty much all that made everything. And Every now and then you'd buy a new bit of kit, you'd buy a new drum machine or something, and then you'd just find out how, how to use it and abuse it and what noise does that make. And it was, it was kind of, we felt like we were sort of on the, the wild frontier of music because learning how, how to make music by chopping up other people's records and stuff like that, which I found really exciting and I really loved that uh, uh, abuse of instruments. Now, when I go to, 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 to make a record now, I open the laptop and I've got this workstation which has got every single drum machine in the world every single synth i've got access to every single sample and i can you know and it's just it's information overload information overload so you yeah. don't know where to start and yeah. uh, and but also it's there's no it's like shooting fish in a barrel there's you no know, you, you just feel like well i could do anything and i end up doing nothing 
Well, the discovery aspect of use, and I've always said this, the discovery aspect of using a limited amount of tech yeah. forces you to think as creatively as possible to squeeze every single juice and you know, squib yeah. and, 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 and squeak best, out of the box that you can. The best example of that is the 303. Yeah. The 303, which was the cheapest instrument. It was rubbish at its original job. <laughs> and so it's secondhand in every junk shop. And then some fine gentleman worked out that if you abuse it, it makes the most sexy noises, which have become part of the tapestry of dance music ever since. And yeah, and that was just down to one failed musical instrument and, and people, you know, distorting it and abusing it. Listen, one man's failure is another man's hit. So why don't you do this? This is something I've started to do recently. Like, I'm the same as you where I've got a laptop, I've got so many samples, so on and so forth. Um, Especially now with, with um, quarantine, um, I was building a studio here in Miami. I had to stop everything. I literally dragged my, my vinyl decks, my 1200s, my CDJs and everything. And I've got where I'm recording right now. Little mini setup. I'm doing my graffiti. You can probably see the pieces. The pieces are working on behind me. So it's kind of like, you know, getting back to the roots of it. And I started pulling out old samplers and my SP 1200 and stuff like that. How about trying that just for kind of like laughs and without any expectation because the problem is i think we put a lot of expectation on ourselves to actually make what something. you're probably saying is kind of maybe exactly there. exactly that's it's it sitting there. It's that's sitting it <laughs> yeah you know what i could probably send you some discs and samples that i still have for the s950 and the sp1200 in case you lost all of yours well not again I'm, no i've got more mine here don't worry i'm trying to I've got my whole song. Yeah, no, I've, what I've been doing is kind of getting the 950 and then loading up all those little floppy disks and putting them into my, my sort of palette in, in Ableton. But I tend to, I end up using them more just for a DJ and just for re-edit yeah. for DJing. You know, uh, I, find that, I find that the re-edits helps me get back into a creative state. Of really? Production, of creating so, have you, so over the years, have you suffered from a kind of writer's block sort yeah. of? Yeah, it, 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 and it went really, really bad, like the whole explosion of the whole EDM thing when everyone was just kind of really regurgitating the same breaks, the same sound, yeah. same bloody everything. I kind of reached a place where I didn't know where to go, you know. Um, it forced me to rethink how, why I do what I do, you know, and that's why I love hearing the fact that you and I both come from the same place of we love music and we love the origins of where we started from cyclically it's come back to where we started from now in a very curious way even the quarantine has affected that people really want to hear not just older stuff but that vibe so it's kind of like the business side of it weighed so heavily on me for quite a while that it i just would like do the same thing where i open up my laptop and i wouldn't even know where to start what i found out was that I had to reset my entire mindset in terms of from the business all the way to it and how it affects me in the studio. You know, so, you know, I, I want firing managers, changing things around, you know, what, 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 you know, what are you doing from your business perspective and what, like, how was it before your early setup compared to how you have it now? You know, is this something that, what, what, now as in post-EDM or now as <coughs> post-COVID-19? I think 
in the last few years, how have you been operating? I mean, the COVID-19 is definitely changing things. I think I had a similar thing with you where EDM just made me question whether I wanted to make records that sounded like that and and whether it was relevant for me too. And I sort of tied it because originally EDM sort of kind of followed on a little bit to where I'd been going, but I, I just listened to it and all of a sudden it's like, I don't like this. I don't want to make, I don't want to keep up with this trend anymore. <laughs> I want to just stay where I am. But I, I kind of, I think, I don't know, in America, in, in Europe, it, we quite quickly split up between yeah. EDM and, and kind of real music. Uh, or real, And it was quite easy for me to make that decision that I would go back to the underground side of it. Because all through my career, I've kind of been very... Very, I'm very heartened by the fact that, that even when I have pop records and pop hits, I'm always kind of allowed back into the fold by people like yourself. You know, well, it's, I, it's not that you're allowed back into the fold. You're part of it. You know, you're well, part yeah, of the tapestry. You, know. you know, I don't feel like... But I know what you mean. But I know what you mean. Put my bridge. You know, like, you know what it's like when you have but, hits. Listen, mate, when, when had a, mate, when I had another chance... Yeah. Every single DJ in the underground was like, oh, you sold out. What happened? I'm like, I just made a track. It just felt good. You know, and one of the things I learned, most importantly, which I've seen from you, is even when that doubt comes through, there comes a point where you just go, saw it all. I'm going to be me. If this feels good, I've just got to go with it. Because what happens yeah. is when you get caught in that trap of trying to be too cool and then if you do have the pop sensibility if you do want to write something that's beyond the narrow confines of a particular genre subgenre it, it you feel like you hit a wall or like i'm not going to be allowed back into the fold you didn't sell out because you did you and also i mean also i sold out i mean i was i was in a you know a, a cheesy white indie pop band but you started there so I, I started by selling out and i've got cooler i think since no, I, mean, I agree. It, it was good. I mean, what I, what I did, like you said about that moment of self-doubt, when I open the laptop, I have extreme self-doubt. And as a result, nothing happens. Uh, but when, if I've got a gig booked, sometimes in the hotel before I'll have extreme self-doubt, I'll walk into the room and just think, oh my God, they're really young and cool. <laughs> uh, you know, how, what the fuck am I going to play tonight? Uh, but because I can't, because you can't have the self-doubt, if you're booked to play, you've got to play. Yeah. And then within three minutes of me starting to play, I'm like, hold on, I, I remember this. I get this. They get this. This is what we do. This is what I do. I'm a performer and I, you know, it, it's nice producing records and making records, but I get such a, an extreme joy out of playing my favorite records to people. Not necessarily my records, just playing my favorite records to other people and watching them dig them, watching them having a great night out, watching them fall in love, watching them get off their faces. You know, I just, I just love being in the middle of that. And that is what, that's what kept me going when I, when that got, got me out of my doubts and around the same time I got sober as well. That, cause that was really scary. That really yeah. made me think, what exactly are you doing? You're standing there playing, you know, playing records to some drunk people <laughs> and waving your arms around in the air and they're shouting, you know, they're getting yeah, overexcited. You, you, that, that's, that's when you had the, I call there's there's two phases. There's the kind of superhero phase, like you think you run everything, and then there's the no, you're not. You're an asshole behind decks playing records. What are you yeah. doing? 
And the interesting thing is, what we really are is somewhere in between. And as long as you remember who you are, the fact of why you do it and why you love it, that's, I think, if, correct me if I'm wrong, that's probably where you kind of have come to baseline, where it's like, this is who I am. I'm comfortable being me. And it's kind of a weird way of going through that cycle, isn't it? Like you kind of go through the start off super hungry, things explode, you're on top of the world, then all of a sudden everything starts getting really weird, especially depending on who you have around you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I th- when you're young, I'm, my son's 19 and he wants to start a record label. He wants to make records. He wants to do this. He wants to be an actor. He's, and he's just, he believes he can do all these things. And I think as you get older, the, the, the knocks that life gives you takes out that confidence of I can do anything. And so you kind of, you end up just doing things you know you can do rather than taking on new things. Yeah, when I, when I was younger, I think you do, you do, you feel like a superhero. It's like, I can do anything. I'll start a clothing brand. I'll, uh, uh. Um, I'm, I'm quite, I'm really happy where I am in, in, in my career right now in that I, I, I know that I love DJing so much that that's, that's, I'm quite happy if I never make another record again. Now, I'm not saying that's what I intend to do or that's how it work out, but if that's the bottom line, yeah. if I never feel like making records again, I don't have to. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, you know, you know, we've been around the block a few times. We know that very few people give up. You know, Danny yeah. Tanaki tried it. He tried it and he realized how difficult it is. You know? Hey, he lives upstairs. You know that, right? We, so live he, same bu- we live in the same building. Well, I figured right. you were close. I didn't think you were that close. Yeah, we were they close. Send we're my like, love, by we're, the way. They're literally neighbors. No, I will do. You know what's in He's the only DJ from our generation, I know, that has ever tried to seriously to give up. And it, I, it, you couldn't I, do I, it. It was destroying him. <laughs> it's just like, what else would we do? It, it, it reminds me of, as well, um, um, what's his name? Danny Rampling. Who I love Danny, and he's an, and he's also has another passion, which is food, so cooking. And he yeah. just said, "Like I'm hanging up my decks. I'm gonna be a restaurateur." And then a few years in, he's like, "I'm seeing him popping up, and he's I'm seeing him pop up in the beat and this." And I'm like, "Danny, what are you doing?" He's like, oh, "I'm just doing the odd gig here and there." I'm like, "I'm like, nah, you know what? Always indulge your passions because I believe creativity sparks from there, but never forget." the kind of root. And this is why I, I never say I'm going to retire. I always say, I'm going to keep on doing it until people kind of don't want to hear from me anymore. Yeah. You know what I mean? What I've always said is that I said, when, when, if I stop enjoying it or if they stop enjoying it, then I'll yeah. stop. Then it's time uh, to stop. I mean, if they stop enjoying it, I'll have to stop. But, um, that's, I, I can't see that happening. And you know, if, if you think like Frankie was, Frankie Knuckles was, was yeah. playing in a wheelchair right to the end. I mean, he's, 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 he is the man who died with his boots on, for yeah. sure. You know, and God rest his soul. And another one who was my neighbor. This is what's funny. Frankie was my neighbor in Manhattan. Is um, there some kind of sort of uh, yeah, slightly aging DJs, you know, like community going on there in Miami? I, I, I don't, you know, well, you know what's funny? It's interesting. So Armand... Can Van I Alden, join? <laughs> yes, you can. You're very welcome. You've got all the right shirts for it. <laughs> Um, Armand's here and Armand's a lot like you in that he's not overly concerned about making tracks. You know, it's kind of like, he's like, I'm not feeling it right now, but he's quite comfortable with himself. I think this is a very important thing. I think being comfortable with yourself, 
But at the same time, you have an independent spirit that allows you to do stuff, um, whether it's creating music, releasing music, DJing, that allows you to express yourself. Now, I was going to ask you about this because part of when you were talking about how you were able to have these huge records, but still be in the underground, part of that's linked to the fact that you've got a couple of labels. I mean, is that... I know I've got a couple of labels too, so I'm curious to hear why you have labels. Did you want to do it as like a business decision or probably more like I get to put out what I want and get to control my own releases and destiny with that? I'll tell you that, yeah, I've only got, I've only got one label, Southern Fried. Skint yeah. was just, they, it was just really good friends of mine and, and right, right, right. we worked together. I never actually ran or owned the label. But Southern Fried, we started because if there was records that I made that weren't Freak Power Records. And uh, at that point, I was Pizza Man. And oh, if, yeah. If, if, uh, if Loaded Records didn't like a tune and they said it's too crazy to be a Pizza Man record, rather than, than give up on it, me and my manager decided we'd put it out as this fictitious band called the Mighty Dubcats. So that, it was just an outlet for the crazy ideas that, we couldn't, that nobody would, else would release. I love and, it. That was the only reason I started. I never really wanted to get into the business of running a label, and I've never been particularly hands-on in running it. I would just A&R. You, do you know Nathan? Nathan Detroit? Yeah, I've kind of bumped into him a, a yeah, couple of times. Yeah, bumped into him a lot. Of the, yeah, yeah. He, he, ran, he ran Southern Fried for years, for, for, and, and I, he would just like, once every fortnight, we'd sit there for an hour, and he'd play me some tunes, and I'd play him some tunes on an A&R front. But I've never got into the... the what is to get into the business of running a label. Yeah. And, but it just became an, an outlet. If, if there was a tune that I was, you know, playing that somebody had sent me and I thought it was really good and no one was picking it up on it, we'd, we'd put it out. And that was my only real motivation was to, to put out the stupid records that no one else wants. Probably and my... And prove that they were... Prove that, that they, they were, were good records. Look, like, like the Mighty Dubcats, Just Another Groove is probably one of my favourite disco-flavoured tracks that I still drop and that just you know when i when i get tracks like that through and i also get a chance that's pretty much the reason why i started i've got two labels which is stealth and, and under the radar just because it's sonically different it's kind of a similar type of thing but just for that just like i want to put out this record i don't want to worry about does it fit into this does it fit into that i could just go with it whether it's you know sales or not it doesn't matter the reaction on the floor, that to me is my particular measuring stick of whether the track is good. Yeah, but also there's just the excitement of, uh, it's um, the excitement of just pressing vinyl. I mean, when we started Southern oh, Front yeah. recently, we would do a, a pressing of a thousand vinyl. And if we could sell a thousand, that would be fine. We've got our money back, everybody's happy we'd had a record out. Now. Some records where I only sell that thousand. Basically, we the only criteria was like, do we reckon we can shift a thousand of this? Yeah. And 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 some of them I thought maybe not, but everything I thought well it's worth a pun. And then some of them you would then go on and license. Yeah. You know, with the mighty Dubcats, we ended up licensing to, to other labels around the world because we didn't at that point we didn't even have an employee. The, the early Dubcats records, we just made them ourselves. I made the labels, <laughs> and then we. I just, remember the drawings too. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I love it. it 
stick little bits out and do drawings. And then we just sell, you know, sell them to the vans that, that took them out. But I loved it. I loved the, you know, and then I loved it when they, they would get across the channel and uh, get into Europe or, or, you know, when, when um, I remember going to, going to, uh, the first time I saw one, a Southern Fried record in a shop in America, it's like I never realized that they'd got that far, you know. They, yeah, yeah. It's just That's thing. a buzz. Yeah, because that was, that was again, you know, there, there was a buzz about releasing records and physically having them and physically getting them to people. And if you got it to the right person, then they would, you know. And which you don't get in this, you know, in, 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 everything's very instant now. It's like. You put you drop the a downloads, tune, yeah. You drop a tune, it gets downloaded or not. You never really know if it has. But those days, you put a tune out, and for the next four months, it would be like, oh, you're hearing it in different places, and some of them would do, you know. And and I love the thrill of that chase, but um, I don't get I don't get so much of a kick. I mean, last time I put out a record, I couldn't even get them to tell me what the release date was. It's hard work. I said, I said, you know, like, what's the release date? They went, well, you know, it's, 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 it's already gone to Beatport and then it's, you know, then, uh, you know, and before the, you know, the release date, release date, everything, all the, all the, the, the promos would go out and everything would work up to, you know, trying to get a big shift on the release date. But now it's like things don't get released. They just kind of peter kind of, into the... It, it, I, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it's not physical. And I think that when you had this physical object, the piece of vinyl, that was the build up, the release and everything because there was something to hold on to. I mean, it's not so much on vinyl nowadays, but are you, do you find like you could do that with merch or other stuff or is it kind of like not really, you're not really into that at this point in time? Because that's, Sorry, that's the one thing, like, like um, before with vinyl, that thrill of having something physical to get out and building up to it. Don't have that as much now with music. No, I mean, you know, they, they, I mean, it's, it, we sound, we're going to start sounding like uh, grumpy old men now. Um, <laughs> where that whole thing you said about physical, there's, there's certain things that I can't teach my children about, you know, physical, be the concepts of a B-side. Yeah. Uh, the concepts of something being rare. On the internet, nothing is rare. Everybody's got it. And so there was a, an intrigue about it that um, I think you don't get. And, there, and the fact that you, you know, like you said you physically held it in your hand, you bought into that particular band or that, that DJ or whatever. Yeah. And now everything is available to everyone all the time. And, and, and so there isn't that kind of precious, you don't feel so uh, involved in it. Yeah, you invested just in the it. button and it's there, wherever you want. Do you, do you think that creating something physical that's why i asked about merch because like now like for instance this is like a t-shirt that i pressed one off of a graffiti piece so now i'm starting to do little things that are extremely limited for the ultra fans but i think that might be a way to get people to invest well that's probably that's probably the only way i could explain to my son what you know the concept of a rare record was like oh it's like supreme you know you have to pay shitloads for it Exactly. Because it's, yeah, it's limited. Yeah, I suppose limited for, for rare, limited is the best you could get. But I, I think... Know, I mean, on, on the one hand, on the one mm -hmm. hand, I think it's great the way that, that um, music now is so democratic. Everybody can make a record without... Before, you'd have to spend a, you know, a lot of money and time getting some kind of home set up together, even to get yeah. you know, 12, a pair of 1200s and a mixer. Oh. And, you know, it, it, that was, it was quite a big investment and everything. And I, now, I like the fact that now people can just mess around on GarageBand as soon as they've got a laptop. 
And I like the fact that everyone can have access to music. I mean, it's really helped. I think the biggest impact that the internet's had on, on DJ culture and, and, and club culture is before then, nobody basically under 18 or 21 in America really heard the music that we yeah. were making. It, it was, was underground because it wasn't played on the radio. And you, you had to be a, a, an over 18 ne'er-do-well who stayed up late to hear it. And because of that, it was, it was lovely and precious and it was ours, but it, was, it wasn't making a huge amount of money. The reason EDM happened was because all of a sudden it's, you know, you can watch DJs uh, on the, uh, and you can hear the music and you can access the music without going to a nightclub, which yeah. is great. And it exploded the world dance music and it's great for all of us. The, the trickle down of it, you know, even the most underground DJs will have, will have, have uh, or producers will have felt the benefits of the, the globalization of dance music. So I think, I think you know, the, the commercial EDM end is a necessary evil for the rest of yeah. us. But I think what, what you're talking about to me is almost beyond the, the underground of the dance music scene. It's that involvement and that investment of a fan with their favorite band or artist or whatever have you. And part of that is investing in a piece of memorabilia whether it's the vinyl that you're playing or whether it's a t-shirt or whether it's something mm. that says, I belong to this tribe. This has always been a tribe of Norman. There's been a tribe of Roger Sanchez. There's been a tribe of Danny Tenaglia. There are tribes around the world. You know what's interesting? It's like we identify our tribes a lot of times by where we're from. And I, there's a huge, brightened, fat boy, slim Norman tribe. And you've done a lot to really connect with your tribe there. And I know that you've done like, um, you, you've, you, I, I heard you, you got involved with the Brighton Hove and Hove Albion Football Club. You like yeah. really, really go, going into the roots. And I know you do the Big Beach Boutique in Brighton. And that to me is, is what I call the investment in the tribe. And that's something where you come from. Do you think that that's, something that's missing maybe now because things are so globalized and do you think that that's kind of a foundation of where you come from because for me it's like new york new york is my foundation and that's where my tribe came from i don't see brighton as my tribe <laughs> i'd see this they're my community right. or, or my family on a good day and that's more my involvement in this city is is it's more about being involved in the soccer team and charity stuff and, you know, just, you know, stuff in the community. And then, you know, the big beach parties were a celebration of that rather than, rather than the, the part of it. I don't, I don't think, I don't think I'd, I'd want to live in Brighton if, if that was where my tribe lived. <laughs> They'd bother me in the street. I prefer to They kind of, from what I understand, it's kind of more like, it, this is one thing about the UK that's a little bit different than the US. In the US, people are like real, like if they see a star, doesn't matter where you're at, they tend to be really fanatic. But in the UK, in certain towns, it's if it's like your hometown, you can walk to the pub. Especially, the yeah. They'll be like, oh yeah, it's Norman. Yeah, yeah. Especially yeah. if you're, you stay in your hometown and you've got their respect, they respect you enough. They just go, all right, Norm. Just like they know you, you know. You're all right. <laughs> that's not my relationship. No, I think, I think my, when you, I was, when I was thinking about who is my tribe, I was thinking my tribe is more 
the people who follow me or follow my 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 lockdown mixtapes every week and those are amazing by that's the way. what's been that. keeping me sane is doing doing this these lockdown mixes where i kind of i kind of go on a little bit of a journey sometimes sometimes it's like the new stuff sometimes it, i wander off but it, it gets my sort of dj creative thing but more so i actually sit and read all the comments that everyone writes and it, it you know in the same way that you can you can plan a set in your bedroom or you know sitting on a plane or something but when you get there and you get people's reactions it, it, it everything works a little bit differently so i get my kicks just talking to people in new zealand and argentina uh, you know some of them get really train spotty about the tunes i played and some of them just you know but I, I that's my i think my tribe is more a worldwide worldwide tribe of people maybe a, some of them few of them maybe a bit too old to go to clubs nowadays so they're uh, kind of living vociferously through me. What's interesting is I think that because of the pandemic, because of this lockdown, it's forced a lot of people to, to, to come to the medium and, be, and, and, and make sure that they're visible as your tribe. And I love the fact that you, you do the same thing I do. You like to read the comments, really connect with people. And I think that if, if, any, if nothing else, I think the pandemic right now has caused us to kind of pause and reflect a bit and kind of really get to a place where we have to go to what we love. You know, what have you found that's come out of it that's real positive? Ah, uh, well, there's, there's the thing that I can, the kind of elephant in the room that no one is really talking about at the moment is that obviously we all realize that, that kind of what we do is going to be the one of the last things to be put back in place. Oh yeah. We are the, we are the, the, the absolute opposite of social distancing. We yeah. are the most dangerous thing. So, be un, you know, I think we all realise that it could be it could be years before really we're allowed to do what we used to do again. But in that within that time frame, there will be a lengthy time frame where you're okay to play to two hundred people in a little in a you know you know garden of a pub or the back room of a pub. Or, uh, you know, a club that's, a, 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 yeah, a small club. But before we can get back to doing, you know, uh, the big festivals and, and, and the, the, the arenas and stuff like that, we're going to get back to just playing in small clubs, which means yeah. we will, which means that there's no point in paying superstar DJs to fly in private jets around the world just to play at 200 people. I think it's really going to go back to, back to basics, back to our roots, when, you know, I, I, I don't know, in, in going, obviously by the time I'd heard of you and, and, and followed what you were doing, you were you were coming over to Europe and playing. But, I mean, my first 10 years of DJing, I hardly ever DJed outside my hometown because the, the you, you didn't get paid enough to pay the, the hotel ah. to go and stay in London, you know. Well, London, I could just about do London, but I never played anywhere else in England because they had DJs there who were as good as me and... There was no point in paying me to go all the way over there. Now, That's over the, the 30 years since then, a lot has happened. But I think it's going to have to go back to basics where smaller yeah. crowds means you can't afford superstar DJs. So, and I'm kind of looking forward to that. I kind of like the idea of, of, of six months of just playing in Brighton and just playing a residency in Brighton again like I used to. Do you know what's amazing is that, you know, it's the same, similarly, it was for me playing in Queens and in Manhattan was like, ooh, I went to yeah. London. <laughs> So, but that small, I agree with you 100%. It's going to be a long time before we get back to anything that resembles what pre-COVID-19 was like. 
And I've spoken to a lot of people and we all agree that what's happening now is kind of like a major reset. People that are in this for the love of music, like yourself, are the ones who are going to outlast and survive. There'll be new crop of people coming up during this time who maybe might be influenced by guys like us who love the music. But the people that are able to transcend this are the ones who do exactly like you're saying. It's, it's great that people hear us and say, wow, Norman Cook, Fatboy Slim, is down to play a 200-person pub, you know, and, and, and happy about it. And I think that's an important, an important aspect of what we do is that love. That's, that's real. You can't manufacture that real love of music. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I learned a very, very important lesson the other week. I did my first live stream. I, I like doing the mixtapes, but the idea of trying to just DJing in, you know, in your kitchen uh, to, and without, without an audience there, I didn't really fancy doing, but I did. I filmed a blue screen thing in my lounge to be used in a, a, a virtual reality show that they did for the Shangri-La for Glastonbury. And when I was filming it, I, I, I was just standing there, literally in my kitchen with a big blue screen behind me. And, but there was about seven people in, in the room like who were doing the lights and the, the technicians and that. And I said, it's, you know, it's Tuesday lunchtime. Can, can you give me a hand here? Because I've got to try and make it look like that. I said, try and give me a give me some kind of reaction back, you know. And after about 10 minutes, they, we all started getting into it together. And there was eight people in the room. One of them was me. And it was, it was great. I loved it. And I, and I realized that whether it's seven or 7,000, you just need, you, I just need to play need to that around. vibe. So, and, and I, I just felt alive, you know, after, that was after six weeks of just, you know, homeschooling my kids. I felt alive again and I felt this, my heart beating again and that the love and excitement for it all. So yeah, I mean, I, I, when my manager said, you know, you're going to have to, you know, probably end up playing in Brighton and you know, small clubs for the next year. I'm like, yeah, that's really yeah. Loving, loving it. I love the one that I saw with your daughter playing with you. I thought that was amazing. Oh, did you see that? I did see that. And you know, it's one of the things where I've got a, I've got a daughter too. Um, bit of a different situation with me. But one thing that I think is important is sharing the love of music with your kids, regardless of what direction they, they pick. Because, you know, I try not to tell any of, any of my kids what, what to do. But I am happy to be able to kind of share some of that musical DNA. Is that something that's important to you too? Kind of pass that on to your daughter or your, your son and see them kind of vibing with it. Or at the very least, you know you've given them a bit of 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 of, a, of an idea of where that love came from, why that is who he is. Yeah. Well, I de I definitely went the path of not encouraging them to do anything apart from uh, the, the the yeah that that podcast was it was just it was just we we had that was because, so much fun. That was supposed she wanted to go to Camp Festival and that was going to be her first festival and she was so disappointed that it might not happen. So that was kind of her treat to for not doing it. But um I'm not the pushy dad who's said to both his kids, you know, I I said to him, you know, you don't want to do what your dad does do. And, he, and my son even when I asked him uh, what he wanted to do and he said, well, I can't do DJing because you've killed that. <laughs> I can't do Ruin that for me, Dad. I Thanks. Can't do radio or TV because Mum's ruined that. He said, "So I'm going to." Have <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome! Nothing like a pair of like rock star mother and dad to kind of go. Yeah, I'm going to be yeah. a lawyer. <laughs> I'll be a baker. 
<laughs> but my daughter, oh. but she is, yeah, no, my daughter Jenny. I mean, she genuinely asked if I could show her how to DJ, and she's got a, she's got a little touch for it. She didn't do half the tricks because obviously we're doing it in. I was, you know, like she got a bit freaked out. I think she got she was more interested in uh, sort of doing her TikTok moves for the cameras rather than oh um, yeah getting deep into it. But when she gets really into a mix, she really loves just chopping it about. And she's way more, she's a much better, more technical DJ than me. You know, I, I think the best thing is letting them find their way. It's funny, yeah. it's like, um, I speak to Simon Dunmore a lot from Defected and his kids just grew up in it and they fell in love with it. And the thing is, he told me, same thing. I think, I think when you've done this, especially when, I don't know what your parents were like, but my, my dad is an engineer. Um, mom was going to church and I was like, yeah, I'm going to become a DJ. And in the beginning, that was kind of like big question marks on it. My dad actually said, you know what? You need to follow your heart and do what you want to do. That's the thing that I take away. Don't push your kids to do what you do, but give them the space Mm. to find it if that's what they want to do with, with my my parents who worked the other way around i said you know, i wanted to be make make pop music and they said that's rubbish you'll never do it and uh i think my my dad sort of one stage up from being a prostitute i think <laughs> and so they all all they did was tell me i shouldn't do it i couldn't do it i wouldn't do it uh and made you want to do it even more they, they, that, that's the reason i did it was just to, to prove them wrong so there's two, I think there's two ways to skin a cat. You can either, you know, I, with my kids, I just, I just really ambivalent. I've not pushed them into it. I've not said you can't do it. But like you said, they just, my, my kids, both my kids have just grown up, physically grown up with, with all this around them and, and, and with their mum as well. It's just showbiz is all around them. But more yeah. specifically, they've been to Ibiza every year of their lives. And, they, and the highlight of my daughter's year is, is coming in the booth at Mambo with me. That's, oh, I love you know, it. She loves, love she it. spends the whole evening. She, the, the, when she was really young, she wanted to come down and see what daddy did. And we figured Mambo was the safest place. Yes. And when we got to Mambo, it was absolutely rammed everywhere. So the only safe place for her was in the booth with me. And she loved it. And no one else, no one seemed to, you know, bat an eyelid. So every year her and her mates come in the booth and just, and she. Do you know, she, do you know how many kids I've seen grow up in that booth in Mambo? <laughs> From all the years and what's crazy is i've seen them when they were kids like proper five ten year olders and some of them are like 25 26 years old djing themselves and i just think it's like you just absorb the the molecules of music in the air into your body and i think if you allow your kids to do that let them choose their way give them the option I think that's the best way forward mate yeah and and you know and they've seen They've seen, I mean, you know, they must see other people's parents who get up and go to work every day and, and probably don't like enjoy their jobs. And then they've just seen the enjoyment that I get and then the enjoyment that I give to other people. And, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, um, unless they really kind of, like you said, yeah. just reacted and, you know, I want to go and be a librarian just to fuck you up. <laughs> But the thing is, it wouldn't fuck you off. You'd be like, oh, cool. Yeah, cool. Me with the library. I, I know where to get my books now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you, you've had an amazing long career, mate. And, like, I don't see any signs of you slowing down. So I love it. But I've, I've slowed down a bit. Well, when I say slowing down, I mean, like, saying – this is not what I love anymore. And I've just kind of been jaded by the whole thing. Because like you said, 
I think the exciting thing is going down to bringing it right back down to the pegs and taking it down to 200 people sweating in front of you uh, with a mask on now, obviously. Um, and please don't spit my way. But that energy is what drives you. You've had, like I said, a very long career. What, if any moments stand out for you as like really career defining that you could look back and tell your kids, you know what? I remember this and have that be something that really feels defining for you. I think the parties we did on Brighton Beach, they, uh, you know, that to, to, to do that in your hometown and to do, that's the largest crowd I've ever seen, you know, for a DJ. And, um, yeah, just to, just to feel that was my kind of, you know, coming back to your Marvel kind of, continuing Marvel, that was my sort of epiphany of when I realized I was a superhero. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, there's nothing like hometown love, man. Where, no matter where I've played around the world, playing in New York, my hometown, getting love yeah, locally, yeah. feels like nothing else in the world, right? It's, yeah, it's just the greatest pride ever. I think probably, that you know, your family being proud of you. It's like a very extended version of that. And, um, yeah, so I think that's probably the, the defining moment. So more recently, it was just, uh, I've, got, I've, I've got a cafe down the road in the local park where all the kids come. Uh, oh, wicked. And we, we do an annual block party there where I'm, we never announce it, but I always play in the back of, a, of an ice cream truck to the kids. And that's my last thing. I think I saw you post about this. Did I might have done, yeah. Did, did Dan come down? Was he everything with you on that one? No, not on that. No, not on that one. Me and Dan, we did driving around. We did carpool, yeah. DJ carpool karaoke. Ah, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, that, this, this is just, it's just, uh, it's, uh, it's called the Big, Big Beach Cafe. And me and my, my mate run it and own it. Well, he runs it, I own it. And it's uh, once a year, we just have a big, you know, it's like a village fete. Yeah, yeah. Listen, you know, it, I've got it a block party, but obviously I live in, you know, it's like a village fete and there's, you know, there's the kind of, there's a dog, little dog, best dog competition and, uh, you know, tombola stalls and whatever. And at the end of it, unannounced I, I always get and play out of the ice cream van and it's just for me it's like that's everything about my career so be able to just I love it DJ I love it. and DJing to ki all ages and kids and an ice cream truck an ice cream truck you know in, in the Listen, back of my, my when, when, they, when they let Americans back into Europe again because it's going to be a second for me let me know because I'm going to come and play a set back to back with you <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm in. I'm in. We got to get a day for that. No, for sure. Well, I tell you what. Right about now, what would you tell the Funk Soul brother to use as his weapon of choice to make just another groove? <laughs> I'd say, ouch, ouch, one, two. <laughs> uh, was that a serious question? <laughs> that oh, was just, just me. That's just just me. Just wanted to get all that, those. That, that, that's just that's just me asking an actual serious question, but trying to use all the creative titles. Well, as, in, as in, as uh, in, uh, one record. If you DJ, what would you tell yourself? So let me translate that. Oh, my my previous self. What would you tell yourself is the one most important thing to let you create, be it playing, be it making beats. What's the one most important ingredient in that special sauce for you? 
I would just say, it sounds corny, but I'd say follow your heart, not your head. I don't think that's Because your, your head will get caught up that people might not like it or that it's rubbish, or your head might say, oh, it's not going to make me any money, or your head might say, you know, follow your heart, and at least what you do will be, you, you won't care. You'll, you'll, if, you, if you're following your heart, you have, you, you're brave enough to say, you'll, you know, see if you like this. Um, and then, and yeah, I mean, that's what I think I've got right. There's tons of things in my career I've got wrong, but I think that everything I've got right has been when I followed my, my heart rather than my head or my dick. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've all followed enough yeah. of those. But I got to tell you something. I agree 100%. Whenever you follow your heart, it's how you measure success, mate. To me, the measure of success is how happy am I with what I've done. Yeah, but with, with me, it like also, it just seems to go better if I, you know, if I try and be cynical and think, oh, I'm going to do that and because that would be clever, and then it never, it never kind never of... Never goes to plan. <laughs> it, never, <laughs> it just never works, basically. Um, so it's normally when I do it, like, I just get a gut feeling. And it's like, I don't know why I want to do this, but I want to do it. And, and this, yeah, this, and, could, and this could end really badly, but I really want to do it. And it usually well, no, ends I'm well. Physically dangerous, I might not do it, but... <laughs> Not well. I don't know about that. I've seen you do some physical. I see you now. You're right. <laughs> so, 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 but you've done it all from the heart, man, and I love yeah. that. And listen, my man, Norman Cook, praise you for your talent. Thank you for your time, and you've been good to me. That's all my cheesy titles that I'm gonna throw at you. Listen, mate, thank you so much. For taking this oh, if you want to give me another Halloween. chance, then let's do this again. <laughs> Absolutely, and I'll have you. I'll have you love dancing. <laughs> <laughs> the hustle.